Amen. Thank you, worship team, for those selection of songs, especially the last two kind of medley songs of the books on God's amazing grace. It's wonderful, especially I love that uh, song, Amazing Grace. You know, we we often, uh, man, more often than not, I think finally I say we sing it at funerals, but man, we, we need God's amazing grace all our days, don't we not? We're not just not just when we're, uh, you know, well, at our funerals, so uh, we'll know then, but the people, you know what I mean. Anyways, I uh, just want to again warmly welcome all our guests and visitors with us today. Uh, glad to have you with us. And uh, from wherever you've uh, kind of just come from, wherever the God's doing in your life, uh, we're glad that God brought you here today. And we pray that God would bless you today uh, because you came to join us in our worship service. As we continue worship, uh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 19 to 20. As we continue our series through the book of Isaiah, particularly focusing on this, this section on God's judgment on the nations. God's judgment on the nations. I actually came across an article in, I think, uh, in, in Dallas Theological Seminary's, uh, uh, their theological journal. It's called Bibsat. And one scholar actually was doing research on uh, on studies and sermons on Isaiah. And they discovered that in one year, they were just kind of used one particular website, a very conservative evangelical web sermon, sermon uh, website. And, and they discovered that basically uh, like less than, less than, I think, 9% of the sermons all preached on that website. You know, there's not, there's a lot of sermons were on Isaiah. And, and, when, and of the ones that were on Isaiah, there was even fewer that was just <clears throat> on, of course, this sec, this, these particular sections on judgment. Usually people just kind of, you know, gloss over these. They covered the first six or so chapters and they jumped to chapter 40, which is all the good news. You know, that's just how it goes, Isaiah. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I was thinking, well, I should throw these up on that sermon website so that there'll be more additions to, uh, the sermon, uh, resources for Isaiah 19 to 20. But hopefully it's been a blessing. Uh, I've been growing in my appreciation for these chapters as we've been studying it. Just seeing its its application for our life, its relevance. It's, it's really hard to just to understand prophecy, much less understand its relevance for our day, i tell you the truth. Uh, I think we all feel that way. Sometimes you read the, the prophets in your devotion, you're like, I don't know what I just read, you know. So just to kind of grasp with it is just a, is a challenge for us, a challenge for me. I trust it's a, been challenging to you as well. Uh, but... And so you, the more we are in it, the more I say, wow, this has so much relevance for our day, for our times. And that's, well, that's just the nature of God's word, isn't it? Well, as we, hopefully you've gotten to Isaiah chapter 19 to 20. Let's open this time and commit this sermon, uh, this preaching of his word to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we come to your word and just pray that you will be glorified through the preaching of it. May you be magnified through this, your word this day. And Father, may you use me as your instrument. May your spirit go before your people, filling each of us so that you, your spirit would teach us what we need to hear and understand from your word. Lord, these things we pray so that you would be glorified and especially that the name of your son, Jesus Christ, would be made known to the world. These things we pray in Jesus. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> and each day we turn to the news and maybe uh, your. I say we turn to the news like actually you're watching television, but nowadays most of us are clicking to the news on our webpage or just getting it streamed to our, our phones or you're just reading it on Reddit. Uh, anyways, when you turn the news each day, you inevitably read about various political, economic, and social issues of our day. This past week, you may have just turned to the front page or clicked to the front page of your favorite news site, and you would have seen something about maybe um, ISIS and how it's declaring a state of emergency. You might have read about Venezuela and its 
potential collapse as a government. You might have read about Apple's $1 billion investment in a Chinese Uber company. Uh, you might have read about uh, transgender restrooms used in public schools. You might have, and for sure you read about uh, a whole plethora of things regarding our presidential candidates. You know, as you read about these various issues, you probably read them with some amount of interest or concern, or perhaps even for a few of them, a bit of ambivalence. Uh, you probably read it on wondering, what kind of impact does this have on our own lives? I was reading the collapse of Venezuela. It's not too often that you hear read about a potential collapse of a whole government. And so it's like, wow, I wonder what the collapse of Venezuela is going to do upon the whole world economy. What's that going to do to us? Uh, we may sometimes think about, how is this news going to affect our future? And we think about all the, uh, the, the these presidential candidates and who is going to choose uh, what vice presidential candidate they're going, they might select. And you think, how is that going to impact our future as a nation? We definitely think about the people and groups that are involved uh, in various in the news events that we read. We may agree, disagree. We may think about what needs to happen, what needs to change to fix a problem or, or, or a situation or issue. But as we read the news and we have all these various thoughts, in all of them, we generally read the news with an earthly perspective. We generally kind of read it from my perspective. What does it have to do with me? What is it? What do, what do I get out of it? What, what am I, what's my interest in it? Uh, we, and... That's not necessarily wrong to kind of see it from our point of view. We see much of our world from our point of view. Uh, we just kind of, but when we look at the, the stuff that's happening around our world, some relevant, others irrelevant to our lives, uh, what we tend to forget is that whenever we read our news, whenever we click on that website and we're looking at an article or something that's happening, even as maybe as uh, interesting or maybe, I guess, uh, passing as something called, like entertainment news. You know, I like to read my entertainment news too, just like you do. That whatever we're reading about in the news that's happening in our world, that we're reading about something that God is providentially working through. We may not understand how. We may not understand. We may never see it, how it's going to work out even in our lifetime. But if we've been understand, we understand that God is a sovereign God who's providential and working in all the world, then everything that takes place in the world takes place under His sovereign hand. God is not absent in our world; rather, He's completely involved in it. In Isaiah chapters thirteen to twenty-three, and we've been looking at, and especially today's passage reminds us of this wonderful truth that whatever's happening in our world, all the political, economic, social issues that are happening in our day, God is involved in them all. God is in control. Uh, one commentary that I've been reading, uh, written by J. Alec Mollier, writes <clears throat> a very, just a, 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 just a great uh, quote, and I want to read this for you. He writes this on this section of Scripture. The abiding message of a passage such as this lies in its insistence that the problems of society Economics and politics have a spiritual causation. They are the outworking of divine purposes and are directly traceable to the hand of God. Not the outworking of sociological laws, market forces, or political forces. And it is only by recourse to the Lord that they can be solved. In a world 
that seems to be moving full speed ahead without God. We need to remember that God is absolutely ever-presently involved in it. And this is the lesson from today's text. Isaiah chapters 13 to 23 encourages God's people to not put their trust in nations, its politics, its power, its people, but to trust in the Lord, their God. We have seen uh, judgments upon Israel's surrounding nations like Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Damascus. And today's text, God turns his prophetic vision to the nation of Egypt. I'll throw up a little map for us, a little better map. I like this map. Uh, much clearer than the other ones. But you can kind of see the map there. It's kind of the Sinai Peninsula. Egypt's on the left side. And Israel's just to the north of the Sinai Peninsula, uh, right there kind of up, up the way. Now... Egypt, of course, if you know your Bible, was no stranger to the nation of Israel. Uh, Egypt was well known. I mean, you, well, most of you probably are familiar with Egypt today. It's still a nation today. It is, Egypt is Israel's earliest and most long-standing frenemy. You know, that's really what they are. They're frenemy. Uh, they are at times friends, at times enemies with the nation of Israel. From the time of Joseph, when he arose to second in all of Egypt. Egypt at that time played a very vital role as an ally to the people of Israel, to the family of Israel, and a source of deliverance for them through a time of famine. At other times, like when Joseph died and a new pharaoh arose in Egypt, according to Exodus, uh, Egypt then became an enemy and a source of domination. Now, Egyptian civilization is uh, very old. Uh, scholars say that it dated back to 3100 B.C., so it's like 5,000 years ago it began. But by the time of Isaiah, that was about 700 B.C., or late 700 B.C., uh, Egypt had fallen, in, fallen far from its once former glory. In fact, by the late 8th century B.C., its height of power had diminished extremely. It was divided by city-states in Egypt so that it allowed Ethiopian rulers to come in and conquer upper as well as lower Egypt and basically unify this nation under Ethiopian rule. And that was the, the 25th dynasty of Egypt. And you kind of look on Wikipedia, you can kind of read some of these events. And in that newly restored might and unity under the Ethiopian Empire, Egypt once again became a formidable foe, a, a formidable frenemy, potential ally for, the, for Israel, particularly against the mighty Assyrian Empire. And in these two chapters that we look at, God reveals his plans for the nation of Egypt. He reveals his plans for Egypt as a warning to his people, as a warning to Judah to not trust in Egypt, but to trust in their sovereign God. In fact, later on, as we look in Isaiah chapters 30 and 31, are two chapters that cover God's direct warnings to the nation of Israel for seeking help from Egypt. That's kind of just a good cross-reference if you want to take time to read that. Now, in our text today, the judgment of Egypt reminds us, it reminds the readers of this text, that God is sovereign over the events of our world, and salvation is found in him alone, not in a nation like Egypt, not in any nation. And as an outline for us, kind of, we're taking two, two large, uh, two chapters, so uh, kind of big overviews, look at three prophecies in this, in this oracle that display God's sovereignty over the world. So that's kind of where we're going to come to just a general outline. Three prophecies in this burden of Egypt that display God's sovereignty over the world. That even in the life of Egypt, as we look at what is God prophesying is going to take place with them, we see many different things are going to happen 
but all under God's sovereign hand. All right? So that's where we're going to go. Let's take a look at the first prophecy that we have in our text this morning. This, and that is the future judgment of Egypt. The future judgment of Egypt in verses 1 to, the, 1 to 15 of chapter 19. Just like all the previous oracles, God promises to basically judge the nation. He's going to destroy the nation. He's going to use the Syrian empire to destroy the nation. That's kind of the repeated theme throughout all of this. But what stands out in this particular chapter is the comprehensiveness of God's judgment upon Egypt. He describes in great detail all that is going to take place in Egypt at some future point. Every aspect of Egyptian society is affected by the judgment of God. As we look at verse 1 to 4, God's judgment produces a social collapse, first and foremost. We read in verse 1 to 4, and I'll read, and you can just follow along in your Bibles. Uh, verse, first four verses. The oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So I will incite Egyptians, Egyptians against Egyptians. And they will each fight against his brother and each against his neighbor, city against city and kingdom against kingdom. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them. And I will confound their strategy so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and the mediums and spiritists. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. From the very first verse in this, in this chapter, the Lord clearly makes known that he is the one that is coming to judge Egypt. It is the Lord who is riding on a swift cloud. It is not, even though he will use the Assyrians to, as his instrument of judgment, but make no mistake, the Lord is behind it all. The Egyptians, and even, as kind of humorously, even their idols are going to tremble at the judgment of God. God's judgment will cause uh, a social, basically a social disorder in the whole land where Egyptians will fight with one another on various levels between families, between neighbors, between cities, and even between kingdoms. And when we talk about kingdoms, we're really talking about the difference between the upper and lower Egypt, which are the two main divisions of the, uh, the nation of Egypt. The result is that the, the Egyptian morale and spirit will be broken. They'll be demoralized, de- devastated. They will feel helpless that they turn, they foolishly turn to idols and the dead for help. And the de- in the end, they are helpless as God delivers them into a hand of a cruel master, as the text tells us, and a mighty king. Now, uh, there are scholars who disagree, <coughs> differ on who this cruel master, who this mighty king it is. But I think in just in light of the context, especially later on, chapter 20, verse 1, that this king is most likely the Assyrian king, Sargon II. We'll get there when we get to chapter 20. Along with the social collapse, though, that's gonna, that is at the hand of God, God's judgment would also produce in Egypt an economic collapse in verses 5 to 10. An economic collapse. Verse 5 to 10, we'll read the the text there. The waters from the sea will dry up, and the river will be parched and dry. The canals will emit a stench. The streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. The reeds and rushes will rot away. The bulrushes by the Nile, by the edge of the Nile, and all the sown fields by the Nile will become dry, be driven away, and be no more. And the fishermen will lament, and all those who cast a line into the Nile will mourn, and those who spread nets on the waters will pine away. Moreover, the manufacturers of linen made from combed flax and the weavers of white cloth will be utterly dejected and the pillars of Egypt will be crushed and the hired laborers will be grieved in soul. See, God 
doesn't just work work sovereignly in people. He also works sovereignly in nature. In nature. See, God here, according to the first few verses of this, of this uh, section, is going to cause a drought upon, on Egypt. And if you know Egypt, Egyptian geography, you know the name of its mightiest river, and that's the Nile River. Right on. You guys good? You know, you're all awake. Um, <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> well, anyways, Egypt, Egypt flourished because of the Nile River. And it flourishes today because of the Nile River. And in those days, the, it would, the nation was dependent upon the Nile River's annual flooding. And if you kind of just know, it would flood where it comes out into the Mediterranean Sea. That particular region, the <clears throat> called Lower Egypt, would flood by the And so when as a flood, it would spread basically good soil, make great topsoil for agriculture. So that region is a very fertile area. And as the Nile would regularly flood, as, it long consist, as long as it consistently did that, Egypt would prosper and flourish. Now, when God causes a drought, though, it brings a devastation to Egypt. Not only would their harvest be poor, not only would they be run out of, uh, run low on food, but in, but many industries that depend upon the Nile, depend upon the Nile River for its produce, that for its uh, its uh, different various produce that which uh, various industries like reeds and fish and flax, where they would make linen from, make baskets from, and then various other uh, <coughs> various other goods, they would all be diminished as well. Would be would be taken would uh, have a would take a hit as well. God was going to do all this as a judgment upon the nation of Egypt, and He would do it through a drought by causing the Nile to have a drought. And we know that this has happened in the past. Remember, in the days of in Joseph. There was the seven years of famine. That was caused because of a drought. There would only be a famine because the Nile River would, not, would basically not uh, flood as it did. There would be very little water. So God, we see, by his hand, affects the whole economy of, of Egypt. He hit it hard. And the people, as a result, would be crushed and grieved in soul. And God was behind it all. Now we see not only a social collapse and an economic collapse, but his judgment also brings about a political collapse. A political collapse, which we see in verse 11 to 15. We read this, we read then, the princes of Zoan, and that's another city in Egypt, are mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors has become stupid. How can you men say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Well then, where are your wise men? Please let them tell you and let them understand what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have acted foolishly. The princes of Memphis are deluded in other city. Those who are the cornerstone of her tribes have led Egypt astray. The Lord has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. They have led Egypt astray in all that it does as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. There will be no work for Egypt, which its head or tail, its palm branch or bulrush, may do. Even these major cities, Zoan and Memphis, their leaders, these were actually once uh, once at different times throughout Egypt's history, capitals of of Egypt. And so in these cities would be great wise men and and rulers, princes they're called. And these leaders that would be called upon for help in this time of drought. And and because that's just what people do in times of difficulty, they, they look to the leaders for help. But the leaders, according to God's word, will have no answers. They'll be stupid. They'll be, have, they, will, they will, in fact, instead of lead the people to help, 
will lead the people astray. There's nothing worse, as you kind of think about the world and even our own nation, different times. It's, it's, of course, it's, you know, it's easy because we're on the other end unless you happen to be a leader of, of the world. But it's easy to kind of just sometimes criticize our leaders for not knowing what they're doing and it seems because it seems like they don't know what they're doing. But there is, it is true, leaders are to lead in times of trouble. And there's no greater, diff, greater, uh, no greater uh, failure of leaders than to lead people astray. In times of trouble. And the cause of all this, the cause of this political collapse in Egypt is because of the Lord. Verse 14, the Lord has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. He is the one who's behind uh, this confusion among the leaders. You know, sometimes next time you think about, man, why is, why are those countries' leaders just kind of acting foolishly? Well, there is a sense where they are responsible for their own actions. But consider also that God's providential sovereignty is also at work and behind it all. As a result of this failure, political leaders, the result for Egypt is that they can't do anything. They, they don't have a Joseph. They don't have somebody wise who's going to say, hey, let's save up for this. There'll be nothing for anything that anyone to do. The whole nation of Egypt will be brought to its knees, helpless against the judgment of God. It will experience social, economic, political collapse and have no idea why nor what to do. For the people of God, this is not the nation you need to put your trust in. And rather, put your trust in God. Now, the next prophecy furthers this point. Not only have we seen the future judgment of Egypt, but in verse 16 to 25 of chapter 19, we see the future salvation of Egypt. That God will save Egypt. Even as he judges Egypt. In the oracle of Moab that we saw in chapters 15 to 16, we saw a picture surprisingly of God's compassion. That God has compassion even as he judges the people that he created. God has compassion for them. His heart aches and he weeps for those that he judges. And we see that same compassion here as God reveals his purpose to save the nation of Egypt. We find again that familiar phrase, in that day. All throughout uh, Isaiah, we, have, we see this phrase, in that day, in that day, in that day. And the majority of times that we see this phrase, in that day, it refers to that future millennial kingdom. The future kingdom of the Messiah that's going to be established on earth. And that is the case here in chapter 19. That one day, the Messiah will come and will establish his rule. He will sit on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem. And he will rule the world from that place in perfect peace, justice, and righteousness. We see this predicted throughout the scriptures and particularly in Isaiah. But in verse 22 of this section is a key verse. I want to read that for you. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing, so that they will return to the Lord and he will respond to them and will heal them. See, God's purposes for Egypt involve in a sense, maybe in our minds, kind of strange, but it will involve striking and healing. God's going to smite them, and God's going to heal them. He's going to judge them, he's going to discipline, and discipline them, and he's going to save them and deliver them. Really, in this case, God judges or disciplines them in order to save them. That his judgment of them is to cause them to, to bring them to their knees so they would repent and turn to Jesus, or turn, well, turn to God. 
in faith. Just as God sovereignly judges, so he also sovereignly saves. And his salvation of Egypt is characterized by five events, by each of those in that day statements. First of all, we see in that day, there will be in Egypt a fear of the Lord. Verse 16 and 17, in that day, the Egyptians will become like women and they will tremble and be in dread become because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he is going to wave over them. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing against them. See, when the Lord comes to establish, when Jesus comes to establish the kingdom in Judah, there is going to be a fear and trembling from all people around the world, but there will also be fear and trembling in the nation of Egypt. And particularly Egypt because they are very close to where Judah is, where Jerusalem is. It will cause, and his reign in Judah will cause all the nations of the earth, but especially the nations of Egypt and Judah to have a role reversal. You kind of think about Israel today. Even though it is a very small nation, it it always seems to be kind of being... uh, attacked by its neighbors. You know, and Israel's not innocent either. I mean, they sometimes do things that are questionable as well. But, you know, it seems like they're just always being attacked by their surrounding enemies or being threatened by their enemies and people within, people without as well. But one day, this is all going to be turned about. And instead of Israel being afraid of their neighbors, all their neighbors are going to be afraid of Israel because they know that the one who sits on the throne in the city of David is one whose will, whose purposes cannot be thwarted. There will be, uh, you know, there will be fear in the hearts of people. You know how we say when you have fear, you, you have a fight or flight response to fear. You kind of have that, you know, you understand that. But if we kind of leave out this, God, fear is not necessarily bad, by the way, because uh, fear is an emotion that we, we experience through various circumstances. But God wants us to respond in the right way to fear. As sometimes it's fear is fight or flight, and sometimes that might be right. But there's a third response to fear, I mean, that should be an always response to fear. That is faith. Faith. He wants, God wants us when we, when people have feared to turn in faith to Him. That's what seems, that's what it seems to happen to the Egyptians. That when this, this fear of the one who is sitting on the throne in Judah is going to cause them as a nation to recognize that we cannot resist Him. Let us turn and trust in faith in Him. And that seems to be what is indicated by the remainder of this section of, of chapter 19. For in verse 18, we see not only is there a fear of the Lord, but there is also unity in the Lord. Verse 18, in that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. Now, there will essentially be a turning to the Lord in five cities. And why five? Why not, you know, 10 or 11, but uh, <clears throat> just five, perhaps at that time, the five were the major cities or that was a, a significant amount for the land of Egypt. But the cities of Egypt, the land of Egypt, are going to turn to in faith to the Lord. They're all going to swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. They're going to bow the knee, confess the, him as Lord of their lives and Lord of lords and king of kings. And as a result, they're all going to speak the common language of the land of Canaan. Egypt was once known for their many different gods. But one day, in the day of Christ's coming, second coming, they would worship the one and true and only God. Thirdly, not only is there unity of the Lord, but when God's, in God's deliverance of Egypt, there will be the knowledge of the Lord in 19 through 22. And this is probably the, the heart of this section. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. 
and a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering, and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing, so they will return to the Lord, and he will respond to them and will heal them. You know, in that day in the millennial kingdom, when Christ returns again, there will be a great battle on this earth. And there will be the forces that are for God, and they will fight the forces that are against God. And it seems that this that day, Egypt will be one of those that will join themselves to the forces of God, to the forces of key, of the king. And the oppressors will come. They will cry out for a savior. They will cry out for deliverance. And God will send them a savior and a champion. He will send them Jesus. He will deliver them in that day. And as a result, all of Egypt is going to respond in worship. They're going to truly know him. They're going to have a, a true knowledge, saving knowledge of the one whom we know as Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And like believers today who worship God through the knowledge of Jesus, Egypt in that day will also worship him through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because he will not only deliver them from their oppressors, but he will deliver them from the greatest oppressor of all, and that is their sin and their judgment. Fourthly, there will be the peace of the Lord in the land of Egypt. In verse 23, in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt and Egyptians into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Now, remember, in Isaiah's day, at this point in time, Assyria and Egypt are basically enemies. Assyria is the mightier empire. It's an empire. Egypt is a mighty nation, though. And because it was well, in, a, in kind of a unity with, with Ethiopia at that time. Assyria and Egypt are enemies, but one day, they will all worship together in peace. There will no longer be war between them. There will only be worship between them. And what's kind of neat about this is that Assyria and Egypt is that if you think, go back to Genesis 15 and look at God's promise to Abraham of the, of the promised land, we kind of think of Israel, kind of modern day Israel, kind of be essentially the, the extent of the promised land. But the promised land actually extends all the way from the river, the Euphrates River, from Assyria essentially, all the way to Egypt. So basically, God's going to fulfill even his promises of the land in the day where God's going to give them peace from one end of the land, promised land, to the other. There will be peace in the whole land. And not just peace in the land, but there's going to be peace in the world. And then lastly, in that day in Egypt, there will be the blessing of the Lord. Verse 24 and 25, in that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Syria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. Whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Israel is going to fulfill its Abrahamic destiny. What God promised to Abraham and his descendants, God is going to fulfill. That Abraham's descendants, his, his family would be a blessing to the other families of the earth. That's what's going to happen in this day. They're going to fulfill its blessing to Egypt, to Assyria, to the whole earth. They're going to bless them through, because through the salvation that is freely offered through Jesus Christ, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We've already looked at how in the future all the nations are going to go to Jerusalem, to Judah, because there is where they can learn about the knowledge of the Lord. But what's kind of neat about this, uh, this particularly two verses, verse 25, 
It just really it just stands out. Because you look there, and you kind of just read it. We just read it very casually. But Egypt, my people. Assyria, the work of my hands. Israel, my inheritance. What stands out is that these Gentile nations, Egypt and Syria, are attributed titles, my people, the work of my hands, titles that are, have been up to this point reserved for who? Israel. This is Israel's title. This is the chosen nation of God, the chosen people. This is their promise. But God is saying, is really revealing what he's always intended, that there he would be, have a people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. From Egypt and Assyria as well. They will be his people. They will be his work. This theme of the messianic kingdom that we find here in, in these five, in these five kind of characters, characteristics of the deliverance of Egypt is one of the greatest themes running throughout Isaiah. And I'm, I'm just beginning to grow to understand and appreciate it myself. Even as Judah dwelt in a world surrounded by enemy nations, mightier than they, they are constantly encouraged to not turn to any kingdom of the, this earth, but to look instead for the coming kingdom from heaven, the messianic kingdom. It is that kingdom that will bring universal fear, unity, knowledge, peace, and blessing from the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a beauty in this. We, we just, because it's kind of buried usually in, or detailed here in the Old Testament, which we, we tend to avoid because it's just kind of sometimes hard to understand, hard to grasp. We've, we don't quite live in this, with this assurance, this hope. You know, we should have the same passion for the kingdom as the people of God did in Jesus' day. You know, they were always looking for the kingdom. They were looking for the king to come so that, to the extent where they actually were ready to make Jesus their king. They were about to, to make him a political king. But Jesus, God's plan for the, his son has been that he would one day come and sit on the throne of David and rule over the world. And that is the source of hope for all of God's people, past, present, and future. We find hope in the coming of the messianic kingdom. Even for the people of God today, even for the people of God after Christ's first coming, the strength for living in a world surrounded by enemy nations and forces that are really out of our control as human beings is in the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ. He is our only hope. You know, when we look in our world, there is no perfect government. When I think about our election times, uh, I sometimes get hopeful that if I would just only, if I would just, you know, my vote would make a difference and, and just get that guy in, you know, or that gal and vote in that office or get that, that law passed or that initiative, you know, defeated, then it's going to be a better world. And I, you know, if you thought about that, and, and it's not, you know, don't get me wrong, I, I want to always emphasize we need to be uh, involved as citizens of this world and be involved in the political process. But that's not where our hope's got to be. It's not where our hope is going to be. Our hope's got to be in the one who controls everything else. It's in the one who is the Lord, the, the, who is the one who is coming to establish his perfect kingdom. Our troubles are rooted not in a lack of political policies or social issues or economic resolutions or determinations. Our troubles are rooted in spiritual condition. Our world needs a spiritual resolution. That can only be found in a, a spiritual policy being enacted. I mean, we all know that God's already enacted that policy, hasn't he? 
when God sent forth his very own son to die on the cross for our sins, taking on him the death that we deserved so that we who believe upon and trust in him and his son might receive and live the life that he gives. And one day, this one whom we put our trust in is going to come and he's going to completely remove sin from this world once and for all. And he will establish his government and one that will be a perfect government. You know, as Christians, when we read the news, sometimes we get discouraged. I know I do. I say, man, oh, man. But really, when I think now, in light of texts like this, when I read the news, when we read the news, it is simply a reminder that Christ will come again and he'll make all things right. He will do so for Egypt and he will do so for all who trust in him. As we look to chapter 20 then, we, we look find a third prophecy that encourages us to trust in God. But if you notice in chapter 20, there, it turns into a, a sort of a, what's already out, <clears throat> is, is more of a continuation of this narrative. But it's a third prophecy, and it's unusual in the sense that it's not God saying, really, this is what's going to happen in the future. But he gives Isaiah an instruction, a visual prophecy. He says, do this as an actual symbol, as a symbol of the prophecy that's going to take place. And this prophecy serves to bring home the point of our text, and that is the futility of trusting in Egypt. We find just that it is a really, a, instead of Isaiah saying something, it's really Isaiah showing them some, the people of God something. We find, first of all, verse, in chapter 20, verse 1, the historical setting of this. So it goes into narrative mode. In the year that the commander came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and captured it. So we see in verse 1, just kind of a, a historical setting. Ashdod, at this time, is a major city in Philistia. It's the Philistines. It's kind of just to the southwest to the, by the Mediterranean Sea of Judah at this time. Ashdod had rebelled against Assyria. And we see, we know this from just historical records that are kind of recorded for us throughout history. And it had done so as an alliance with some of the other nations. We've already listed some of them. We, we listed Aram and, and the northern kingdom, Israel, Moab as well, as all had kind of joined up in alliance to rebel against, uh, against Assyria. So Sargon II, the king of Assyria at this time, sends his commander, one of his military leaders, to basically squelch the rebellion, and he succeeds. Uh, we have the, the date down as 711 B.C. is when this takes place, that Ashdod is conquered and captured. It's besieged, besieged and then it's defeated, and their people are taken into captivity as, as, as uh, Assyria is, by its kind of foreign policy, does with every nation. It, takes, it defeats a nation takes them into captivity, and then kind of replaces the land with people that they took from another place, that they defeated in another place. It's interesting, because at this time, by 711 B.C., Aram's already defeated, northern king Israel's already defeated, Moab's already defeated. Only one left part of this alliance is Philistia, Philistia and Egypt. So Egypt could have came, or Perhaps if there's an, if it's really an alliance, they should have came, right? It's like NATO, right? They kind of get together. They have an alliance. They have a treaty that basically, hey, we'll protect, get you to the other's back. If I'm in a battle, you're going to, you know, come alongside. But what happened is that when Ashdod was attacked, when Philistia was attacked by Assyria, Egypt did not come. Egypt stayed home because they were afraid of Assyria. 
they trusted in Egypt and they found that it was lacking. God then instructed Isaiah to fill a prophetic act in verse 2. The historical said in verse 1, prophetic act of verse 2. At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so going naked and barefoot. And here finally we get to this section. I was curious about when I was reading through uh, early parts of Isaiah, the first you know, a couple chapters of, well, I can't wait to get here. Now we're here. So like, what is this all about? Him going naked for uh, three years is what we'll find. But Isaiah was essentially instructed to remove his outer sackcloth garment. In those days, they wore some kind of sackcloth. Perhaps he was mourning. Perhaps it's also, the sackcloth is also the clothes of a, uh, the kind of garments of a prophet. And so, he, but God tells him to take off his outer garment, this sackcloth, and to take off his shoes. So he was going to go naked and barefoot. Commentators disagree whether this nakedness means completely naked or that he was just basically, without his outer garment, he was just basically wearing underwear, you know, if you will, his inner garments. But it was, in a sense, practically naked. But nevertheless, the point is that he goes out exposed. He's walking exposed, and this is by God's command. And so you can imagine the people think, man, Isaiah's lost it, right? Isaiah's totally gone over the deep end. We see God gives a prophetic meaning to all of this. That God is what God instructs Isaiah to do is a symbol, a visual prophecy of something. And that we find this in verse 3 and 4. And the Lord said, even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years. So we see Isaiah does this for three years. Whether he does it consistently all three years or does he do it regularly during those three years? I don't know. But Cush's Ethiopia. So the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. <coughs> God's prophetic act for Isaiah was a sign of judgment upon Egypt and Cush. It was a sign to them and of the fact that they, in turn, would also be taken, would be defeated by the nation of Assyria and taken into captive, also by Assyria, into exile. And by the way, when I see that word uh, naked and barefoot with buttocks uncovered, uh, I tend to take that, that it was complete naked, okay? Or at least the buttocks were uncovered. So um, if you want to be dogmatic about that, but let's not be. Anyways, to the shame of Egypt. And so God basically says, by telling Isaiah to, to take off his outer garment and walk barefoot and naked for three years, he's basically telling Judah that this is what's going to happen to Egypt. This is happening all during Philistia's, uh, when Assyria is attacking Philistia. And so it's kind of, this, it's like two things happening for Judah at the same time. They're looking at Philistia, Ashdod, it's being besieged, and Egypt's not helping them. And, but Isaiah at the same time is walking around naked and barefoot and saying, this is what's going to happen to Egypt and Cush. This is the nation that's going to come and supposed to help Ashdod, Philistia. And this is the nation that you guys think you're going to trust in. This is what's going to happen. A very visual reminder to the people of God. A very sober reminder to them. And by the way, the Assyrians would eventually take Egypt into captivity in 664 B.C. And they would be taken into captivity just as God promised. By verses 5 to 6, we see the prophetic implications of this. The prophetic implications for the nation of Judah, for the people of God. Verse 5 and 6, then they will be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, uh, their hope, and Egypt, their boast. So the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, behold, such is our hope, where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, 
How shall we escape? See, what happened to Ashdod eventually would happen to Egypt and Cush. This all served as a visual warning to Israel to not put their trust in Egypt. Egypt could not help Ashdod. Egypt would not even be able to help itself when the time came, when Assyria came knocking on their doors. So God warns Judah, don't put your trust in Egypt. If they did not escape from Assyria, how would you, Judah? How would you escape? How could any nation escape? The answer is there's only one way of escape. There's only one way of salvation, and it's by trusting in the Lord. And this truth remains for God's people today. Deliverance comes from the Lord alone. We are not Israel, of course. And if, you know, God has not promised us if someone, some enemy nation is knocking on our doors or if societal decay is taking place or economic downturns or you know, we have another, uh, another um, bubble burst in our economy and, and uh, just our economy collapses because, because Venezuela's economy collapsed. Well, political upheaval takes place. God has not promised us as a people that he would deliver us from these things. So we don't have that kind of hope, that particular hope. Though he may, he could. But what we come to learn in this text is that God has promised to deliver us something from something greater. For something greater. That is, God has delivered us from the coming judgment of sin. He's delivered us, saved us to deliver us into that future messianic kingdom that we will dwell in along with the nations of the earth in that day. We who dwell on this, who are saved now, will will dwell in that day with the glorified bodies. And that's a whole other sermon. But that is our promise. That is our hope, along with eternal life with God. So I end just with the question, where's your hope? Where's your hope? Is it in earthly confidences, earthly powers, earthly strengths like Egypt? Or is your confidence in the things that are happening in our world? When you read the news and see like some, some new social policy is enacted or some economic event takes place. Oh, interest rates are low. Man, yeah, money. I'm going to borrow all I can. Do you put your hope in a politician, a particular politician getting elected to office? Are these your hopes? Will they help, will they help you with your troubles? Will they help you escape God's coming wrath? No, because at the heart of every one of our problems is a spiritual problem. And behind all that is taking place in our lives, even what may seem like trials and difficulties, is also under the sovereign hand of God. And he may allow those things to bring us to our knees, to bring us to faith, to trust in the one who saves us. May your hope be in the one who is coming again, God's son, our savior, and our champion. Well, as we end, simply, everything that has happened to Egypt was because of the Lord, whether to judge or to save. As we look upon our world and look around our world today, let us view all that happens with a, with a view of a biblical perspective. Let us see that the fall and rise of the nations are, <clears throat> are under the sovereign hand of God. And let us put our trust in him. Like the rock was our refuge. All right, let's pray. (laughs) Amen. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for 
this reminder from your word, from Isaiah's prophecy on the oracle of Egypt. And Lord, when in these things we see your hand, your sovereignty, we see how you are in control with everything related to Egypt, with their social, their social uh, well-being, their economy, their, their politics. Lord, we see that you are at work in it all. You are sovereign. You are providentially working in and through even the sins of the, of the nation of Egypt. For you are working it to bring about your will, accomplishment of your purposes for those whom are your people. And Lord, we thank you and praise you that we learn here too that your people are not limited to the people of Israel, but they expand to the people of Egypt, to the people of Assyria, to Gentiles all around the world, to ourselves in this day. We thank you, Father, that you remind us that our hope is not to be in the powers of this world. Our, our hope is not in the nations, but our hope is in you. For you, have, you are the one who has orchestrated the most important policy in our day to, to save your people through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you sent your son for us to die in our place. We thank you that it is you who raised him from the dead. We thank you that he is now seated at your right hand. We thank you that it is through faith in him that we can have forgiveness of sins and deliverance from judgment. But we thank you from this text that we have hope that one day in that day, when Christ returns again, that all sin will be removed from this world. All the trials and all the difficulties that we may endure and face in this day around, for believers around the world will be brought to an end because Christ will reign. Father, may that be our hope in all that we read about, all that we go through in this day as well. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.